Well, you all um, are a sight for sore eyes uh, for me. Uh, many of you know uh, that my wife Dawn has uh, long-standing chronic health problems, and so the pandemic has hit us, it's, it's hit all of us, but in a somewhat unique way. Uh, and so just this summer when we were all set to be vaccinated, uh, her father was diagnosed with cancer and just finished up his sixth round, and we've seen some good progress. And Dawn's health also took a hit um, as well over the summer, so her doctor advised her to delay getting vaccinated. We're hoping to get her fully vaccinated soon and so we can return, but we've missed being here. It's taken a toll in so many ways, and we're encouraged by her her father's uh, improvement, and yet his immune system is also severely weakened, and so we've had to just be uh, doubly cautious uh, in the midst of the pandemic. And it's taken a toll in a whole lot of ways, and one of the biggest is not being here, um, not being with you. Um, and we're still in the church, we're still part of the church. The church is not a building, and it's not Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11, uh, but we're made to worship together. We'll touch on that a little bit in our passage, but it's, it's great to be here, and it's good to see you, uh, and it's good to be with you. It's, 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 yeah, I'm going to get all weepy, so I'm going to keep, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Um, so, and um, I have to say as well, uh, thanks, thanks to Dennis and, and Camper uh, for sharing your pulpit with me, and this, this summer when Dennis and I got lunch, uh, and we're talking for about a lot of things, a little bit about preaching, and Dennis said, you know, you can, you can pull one out of the file if you want, but it'd be great if you could do Hebrews, but it's up to you, and uh, stay like, and then he showed me the text after we had picked the date, and I went and read it in my uh, office after lunch, and I was just like, well, I have to, I can't say no to this one, and then uh, it's been rattling around in my mind and heart ever since, and then this week, just really getting to sit in this text that we're about to read, and it's just overwhelming. And I, I thought well, a couple of things. One, the generosity. This is sort of the sweet spot of the bat. And, and somehow or another, when I get up, even with Romans, I got to preach the, like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel part. It was like, come on, we're doing Romans. Like, I get what? That, that one? And then, boy, this one. Um, is, it's overwhelming, as you'll see. And I'm, I'm overwhelmed both by the, the power and beauty of this passage, but also overwhelmed uh, this week, um, and even right now, of how much I need it to be true. And I'm so glad that it is. And, and so thankful that I get to sit in it with you, you all this morning. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. I'm Ben Robertson, by the way. I'm the RUF campus minister. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you. Hebrews chapter 2, um, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are who the word says you are. And we need every bit of you. Be with us, we pray. Amen. So 1995 hit, What If God Was One of Us by Joan Osborne. She wasn't a one-hit wonder, but more sort of a one-album wonder. Um, and I remember hearing this. I was in uh, high school at the time. And I'll read some of the lyrics in case you have forgotten it or have never heard it. Uh, she sings this, What If God Was One of Us. Don't worry about it, English majors. We all know it was What If God Were One of Us, but it sounds better in the song this way. What If God Was One of Us, Just a Slob Like One of Us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Like back in heaven, all alone. Nobody calling on the phone, except for the Pope, maybe, in Rome. Um, It's not particularly poetic and great, um, but I remember it it sort of struck a chord, and it got a lot of airplay for quite a long time. And I remember I was a Christian uh, at the time, and uh, you know, I was like, this is sacrilegious, you know, how insulting, you know, what if God was a, one of us, a slob, you know, and kind of, but also intrigued and drawn into it and being like, I wonder what her message is, what it is, and I remember just sort of self-righteously critiquing it with a friend, and he said, well, we don't have to wonder, like, it's not sacrilegious to say what if God was one of us, that's who Jesus is, it was God, you don't have to ask the question, what if, um, and I love the, the, the song as it posed the question in the midst of our culture because it reminds us that how sort of unthinkable and strange in our freshman small group that Chelsea mentioned the other night, we were reading Acts 17 and um, the men of Athens saying to Paul, like, these are strange things on our ears that you're saying. Like, what is this strange teaching babbler? The oddness of the gospel, the mystery of it, and the beauty that we don't have to say what if, but more look at why. Why God was one of us. Why he became one of us. Verse 14. Since therefore the children that God gave to his son share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, became a human being. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every way. He was one of us. And verse 10 says that, sets it all up saying it was fitting. This makes sense that God would do this. Jesus, the God-man. Fully God and fully man. Um, the big why, the first reason, is so he could become our king. And he was already king, but so he could become our king. Um, verse 10, look, look back at it. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom, and by things, for whom and by whom all things exist, God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I want to focus on that word founder, founder of our salvation. 
Uh, you know, when we stand up here and we say that, now that word in Greek, there's no way to say it in English, and the English word for it is this, right? <laughs> um, um, and then we tell you how to say it in English. Uh, but founder, founder's not bad, but, you know, I read founder and I sort of think like, is Jesus like the Mark Zuckerberg of our faith? You know, is this a young startup and getting the CEO um, out raising funds to, to make it? Sort of. I mean, he's definitely the founder, the inventor of our salvation. Um, it's not a bad translation, but it is more than that. That's what we mean when we say there's not an easy way to say this in English. And some translations say the pioneer or trailblazer. Um, I'm going to go with champion or hero. Uh, the same word, same Greek word is used uh, in reference to Hercules uh, by Euripides, which when I was reading Euripides the other day in the original Greek, I noticed, um, I think that's the same word that the author of Hebrews used. Uh, a commentator told me that, of course. Um, uh, but this hero warrior, this champion, this conqueror, um, and you look at the whole context of uh, chapter 2 here, you, you see this develop. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He's our warrior, our champion king. And he had to become fully man to accomplish that for us. One, I think the biblical example we can think of of this uh, conquering king that is our representative is in the story of David and Goliath. Um, the representative goes forward. We've like one guy on that team, one guy on our team, and he stands in our place and he fights for us and wins. Uh, go see uh, Preston Clarkson's sermon on that passage from a couple years ago because it really ties in with this. But Jesus, our king, he conquers uh, not just through power by slaying the enemy, but he conquers death through death, conquers death by death. He becomes a man, and he has to become a full man because just as the second person of the Trinity, as God, he cannot die unless he becomes a man. Um, and thereby nullify Satan, destroy his power and the power of death. And Jesus uses this imagery of himself in Luke chapter 11, uh, where he talks about entering the strong man's house in that parable where Satan is the strong man, and he says, you can't plunder the strong man's goods until you first tie up the strong man. And here I have come to do that as your conquering champion king. Isaiah 49 says as much. God says that even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. And I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. And the Lord will come in as a warrior king and defeat our enemy, steal us back from the tyrant who's holding us captive. Athanasius, uh, um, uh, fourth century African bishop uh, called the Black Dwarf because of his size and skin tone by his enemies, great theologian, part of the Council of Nicaea. He says this in, uh, on the incarnation. That's God becoming man. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer so terrible to us. For all who believe in Christ tread on it as if it were nothing and choose rather to die than deny their faith in Christ. And that devil that once so maliciously exulted in death, now that its pains have been loosed, remains the one who is truly dead. Our champion frees us from death. 
But not just death, the fear of death, it says. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you see this, you hear the Moses Exodus language. We're going to get to that in the next chapter. Stay tuned, come back next week. Um, Through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery by the fear. Fear. Again, Athanasius, death has become like a tyrant. And Satan with him, who has been completely conquered by the legitimate king. Bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage, because the king has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded for what it really is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample it as they pass, and as witnesses to him deride it, scoffing and saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? An illegitimate tyrant who has taken the city captive and the true king comes in and then brings him out and exposes him and the people get to come behind their king. And remember the context. Camper preached a couple weeks ago about this temptation to drift, to move away, and the context of of the audience of Hebrews, that there's this impending persecution that is rising from the Roman Empire. Afraid of death. Fear of death, tempting them to drift. And Hebrews says, children, be not afraid. Your hero has become flesh and fought in your place and he has won. Satan is overthrown. Death has lost. Be free, have no fear. The uh, German philosopher Nilke said that Every fear, every angst participates in the death angst, the death fear, that the fear of death is the the root behind all of our other anxieties and fears, things that we want to lose, the death of my life, but my status, my reputation, my wealth, my job, my relationships. Christ has conquered all of them. Our king, Christus Victor, as he is called, our champion, and following St. Athanasius and the Apostle Paul, we can learn because of him to sneer in a holy way, to mock death, to mock Satan and his minions and his powers and his influence, to mock our fears, to defy them and say, you've got nothing on me because my hero has come because of his death. But not just a momentary death, because of his suffering, the text tells us. His suffering. Look back again at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, champion of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. To make perfect through suffering. Make perfect? Make Jesus perfect? How are we going to do that? When was Jesus not perfect? How can you make him perfect? Um, it can't mean sinless, because he's always been that. We could even say, like, complete. Sometimes perfection means make him complete, um, mature. But there was never a lack, either before the incarnation in his divinity, or once he was born, he was fully human. He was a total human. The make perfect does have this sense of fulfilling its goal, fulfilling the purpose. Like a speedboat is made perfect at full throttle on a lake that's, like, crystal clear, in May when it's just gotten warm enough and you're the first one on the water and you can slap on your skis for the first time. That's 
That boat is made perfect, not in the dock, not on the trailer. I don't ski, but if you do, I bet that really hit you. Um, and, uh, and it's suffering, made perfect, made complete, made whole, made to fulfill the purpose, because he isn't just the heroic champion king. Um, he's also our sacrificing priest. It's our sacrificing priest. It's hinted at here in verse 10 and made explicit later in verse 17. And the author will unpack this later uh, even more throughout the book. But our, he's our priest. Make perfect, uh, that language in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that would have been the, the version that most people at the New Testament times were reading of the Old Testament. Uh, it's the same language, it's the same verbiage, same words as when a priest is consecrated to serve in the temple. He's made perfect. He's set apart uh, to do his job, to intercede, to make sacrifice for the sins of the people, to plead to God on behalf of his people. You, know, you ever wondered why Jesus waited till he was 30 to start his ministry? Um, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about prophet, priest, and king. Um, prophets, there was no age limit. Samuel, Jewish history tells us, was 11. And when God calls to him and he says, here I am, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Uh, and to be a king, Jehoash was seven he was a bad one, though, so maybe like that was a bad idea. But one of the best ones, Josiah, uh, one, of the, one of the very few good ones, he was eight years old when he became king. No age limit. He'd be a prophet at 11, king at eight, seven. But a priest, Numbers 4 says, you have to be at least 30 years old before you start that job. He's our priest. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. That's a big word. We'll stop there for a second. Propitiation. Some some translations say make atonement, set things right between us and God, um, cover our sins. But it has a stronger sense than that. It's a sense of absorbing the wrath. A propitiation assuages the punishment that is deserved for our sins. Um, that is a complicated issue. Get coffee with your pastors or an elder. Uh, just, why does sin deserve wrath, though? There's a lot to unpack there that we don't have time for today. But all of this to say that in order to be a faithful high priest, to propitiate, to be a substitute, to absorb what our sins needed to have done to them, he had to be both God and man. Um, St. Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century theologian, wrote the book, uh, Curdeus Homo, Why God-Man, Why the God-Man. Um, he writes this, The debt, the debt of our sins, was so great that while mankind alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God, necessary, He says he had to become like his brothers in every respect. It was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person. Jesus isn't a a God guy over here who morphs into a man over here and pops back. He's two natures in one person. To take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not us ought to pay 
but can't should be in a person who could. As a man, he could be in our place and actually be our faithful and merciful high priest. And as God in the flesh, he is able to absorb all of it in his infinite value and holiness. The sin, the punishment our sins deserved, he could take so that he could become a faithful and merciful high priest, faithful in his obedience, faithful in his loyalty, faithful in his service, but not just faithful and righteous and good, but merciful. Such a churchy word, mercy, right? He's compassionate. He cares. He is forgiving. Verse 18 goes on about this suffering. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that? He suffered when tempted. And a couple chapters later, Hebrews likes to bring things up and bring them up again. We'll unpack this more later. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, we could, but this is basic, like, kids Sunday school one-on-one, right? Like, Jesus is just like us. He's a man, but he never sinned. And we look at our temptation, like, Jesus knows he passed through it without sinning. And even as a kid, and even now, I'll say, well, yeah, I mean, he made it through temptation, but he was God, too, right? That's how he got through the temptation, because he's God. So, not very encouraging. Here's what we think it is. We think it's up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. Now, if you were not born between the years 1977 and 1983, you have no idea what I just said. Um, It's a cheat code in an old Nintendo game called Contra, where you're a commando and you run through and you, you fight your way through. And the cheat code, you, pause, you, you hit those, that little instruction, and suddenly you've got unlimited lives, unlimited health, and unlimited weaponry, and you just blow right through the game as many times as you want until you realize that that's not fun at all. And now, in modern gaming, my sons tell me, um, with those kind of cheat codes are actually called God mode, right? That's how, that's how people refer to it. You, you put, the, put in the code, and you're on God mode, and now you're invincible and unlimited, and you can just blast through the game. Look, yes, Jesus was fully God and is fully God, And he was fully man. When he obeyed, when he pressed through temptation, when he overcame the suffering, he didn't do it by punching in a cheat code. He wasn't on God mode. He didn't be like, okay, temptation's coming. Let's, all right, try to flip the God switch on. He obeyed as a real man. Like you and me. Uh, Another song. um, Rich Mullins, an older one. um, He sings this. Uh, a little bit better than the first one I read, Uh, with equally bad grammar. Um, Was you a boy like I was once? Was you a boy like me? I grew up around Indiana. You grew up around Galilee. You, they dressed in swaddling clothes. Me, they dressed in baby blue. Did you grow up hungry? Did you grow up fast? Did the little girls giggle when you walked past? Did you wonder what it was that made them laugh? Did you ever get scared playing hide and seek? Did you try not to cry when you scraped your knee? Did you ever skip a rock across a quiet creek? I'm getting choked up because I once saw my father cry listening to this song. Um, 
And so I, I, can, I can barely listen to it or read the lyrics um, without feeling the same because it feels so real. The poetry, he brings this out in a way that I had never thought about or heard. Um, so concrete, so tangible, did you try not to cry when you scraped your name? Because he's imagining Jesus was a real man and a real boy. Um, because Jesus is real and concrete and tangible, literally flesh and blood, like us. And he suffered when tempted. Um, not just the suffering of the cross, not just the suffering of the torture leading up to the cross, not just the suffering of the propitiation as he experienced the wrath of the Father, but suffering in the whole of human experience. It was hard. He needed prayer and faith and knowledge of Scripture. And that's why the text tells us he can help us. Because, see, we tend to be either like strong heroes or like empathetic, compassionate people. It's hard to find a person who's both of those things. There's a few of us who can do it. There's some people I've known who are both. But you think think about the genius, the brilliant one, sort of blows right by you. You go to them for help, and they've got a solution. They've got a fix, but you don't really feel known and actually help to grow yourself. Um, Or a struggler, they can listen, sympathize, affirm. I get it, I know. Yeah, I've been there too. Me too. That's so hard. Like, okay, you keep hearing what I'm going through, but like, can you give me a little help? Like, um, and the best is when it's both. See, we say misery loves company, and we need that. Um, But misery loves relief. (laughs) Misery loves help as we are suffering, and Jesus is both. Um, He is the most capable and competent person who ever existed, and he is the most approachable and compassionate. He knows. We think of helping help through temptation is like, okay, he's going to help me kind of white knuckle it through. I'm going to, um, this time I'm going to beat it because Jesus is going to coach me through it. Well, he helps us through death and we still die first, right? In the midst of our temptation, as we confessed before, as Dennis was pointing out, we stumble and we fall again and again and again and again. He helps us there too, in the failing, in the not overcoming, but he has compassion Because he knows how hard it is. He knows we are frail. He knows that we can't do it, but we need our champion brother, our high priest, to sit down beside us without an ounce of shame and say, I know how hard it is, and I've been there, and I've done it for you, and I'm with you in the midst of this. Keep going. I don't think that's making too light of our sin to talk about his approachability. I do make light of my sin. I minimize it all the time. Um, Jesus does not. He propitiated. He suffered the wrath. He knows how serious it is. Um, And yet when we say, you know, to think of Jesus being that compassionate, that much like us, that he suffered when tempted, um, isn't to make too little of our sin, but it does make too little of his propitiation. It does make uh, too little of his death and his resurrection. And second, uh, well, and his love. And then it robs us of the very thing that we need to press through our temptations. The kindness and the compassion and the power and the friendship and the brotherhood of God himself. The very thing that we need. He's our champion king and he's our suffering priest. And I've hinted at it already. You think I'm going prophet, but I'm not. It's there, but I'm not. Prophet, priest, king, you know, the triangle. The theological OCD in me just has to get the prophet on there too, prophet, priest, king. Um, Dennis knows, he's, he gets me. 
Uh, he's not ashamed to call me brother. But he, our third one is our, our unembarrassed brother. Our unembarrassed brother is, is how I'm going to put it. It says unashamed. Verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified both have one source. Some translations even say one father. Talking about Jesus who sanctifies and those of us who are sanctified by him have one source. They come from the father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus, our brother, is not ashamed to call you brother, sister. See, he identifies himself with us to save us. But he also identifies us with him. I will put my trust in him, me and the children God has given me. My brothers, my sisters. He's not ashamed. Um, there's not enough time, but go look up an article by a theologian named Jackson Wu. He's a, a theology professor uh, Chinese, um, at a Chinese seminary in East Asia. Um, just Google that title, this title, Theologians Have No Sense of Shame. Uh, and talks about how we talk past one another about this idea of shame, but he unpacks these different ways the Bible uses shame and the ways we talk about it. He says, shame is the fear, pain, or state of being regarded unworthy of acceptance in relationship. The fear, pain, or state of being regarded unworthy of acceptance in relationship. And he talks about the emotional shame, this is the Brene Brown shame, the internal shame, the psychological shame. I feel unworthy. I haven't just done bad. I am bad. And all of the stuff that stirs up there, and the Bible certainly speaks about that and about that, um, that emotional shame. But then there's also a social shame. You have the cultures where there's the honor and shame feel very upfront and very strong in the way that we function as a society. Um, and you see that all around the world. I think it's really strong in the American South, where I'm from. There's this idea... And the, most of the biblical audience very much lived in that mindset. And the Bible speaks in those ways. And sometimes it's a shame that we feel. We think of it as Christians often about sin causes shame, which is, of course, true. But sometimes we're ashamed of stuff that has nothing to do with sin. Right? We're ashamed of our bodies. Ashamed of our income. Ashamed of our accent. Where you just feel humiliated. And it's that sense, the social shame is a sense of, I don't belong. Something has made me unworthy of belonging and acceptance here in front of these people. Which is really about lacking glory. Lacking honor. He gives a couple other, like sacred shame, you're unworthy before God because of your sin, or at least feeling that way. or The morality of shame, where you say, that person's just shameless. Have you no shame? Like, there's, Paul uses that sometimes in, like in Corinthians. He's like, I say this to your shame. Like, you, you don't feel ashamed, but you should. You know, we, we think shame's like all bad. No, but it has a purpose when we sin to drive us back to Jesus. That sense of I don't belong. All of them kind of fuse together with saying, I am unworthy of relationship. I shouldn't be here. And it's something that can be inside me, but it's something someone can put on me too. Um, so here, here's why I'm dwelling on this a little bit. Um, like, Often, I think as Christians, we can say, I know that death is conquered. 
And I know that my sins are paid for and I'm declared righteous. I'm forgiven. But it just sort of feels like a kind of legal loophole, right? Jesus as high priest is this cosmic Johnny Cochran who's just sort of got me off. But everybody knows I don't actually belong, including him. And frankly, he's a little embarrassed. You ever been introduced by someone and you just could feel that, uh, yeah, this is, um, this is my brother Ben. Uh, be cool. You know, just don't embarrass me. Yeah. Ever had children? Right? <laughs> Dad, <laughs> you drop me off down the street, you know, you feel the shame, right? You don't belong. Um, Dad, just, oh, please. We think Jesus thinks that way about us. We do. We have really tight theology and we can explain propitiation and justification by faith. And, but at the end of the day, I don't really belong. I'm not really wanted. A little ashamed of me. Verse 10. Here's the big, big why, man. This is talking about God. For whom and by whom all things exist. Everything is for him. It was appropriate It made sense, it was fitting, that in bringing many sons to glory. We looked last week at the quotation from Psalm 8 and how Jesus fulfills that, how that was intended for all mankind to be crowned with glory and splendor, with honor, not shame. And God was so intent on bringing you and me to glory that it was fitting that our champion should suffer. John 17, Jesus prays us. He says to the Father, the glory that you have given me. Think about this. Glory between the Father and the Son within the Trinity. Jesus says, the glory you've given me, I have given to them. And the them in that part of the passage, it's not just Jesus praying for like the awesome 12, the disciples. He's praying in that moment for the ones that would believe in the message that his disciples would preach, which is you. We talk about imputed righteousness. If you want to unpack all the theology, this is imputed glory. I've given my glory to them. It's yours. The opposite of shame. Our champion cures our shame and belonging problem. So much so, here's how not embarrassed he is of you. Verse 12, and here's the little prophet part. It's got to fix that. I will tell your name to the brothers. will tell your name to my brothers. Speaking the word of God, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Get that? Jesus wants to sing with you at church. These are my brothers. These are my kids. These are my boys. These are my people, he says, and he's not embarrassed at all. He's bragging about it. And he's bragging about the Father, and he's bragging about you, and he's worshiping God as he does it. I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation, ecclesia, the church. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Glory to God, shared with us, and Jesus joining and glorifying the Father in worship with us. What if that's true? Barbershop quartets, four 
people singing together. They, they say, and I've heard this from other people, not just in the quartet world, but in music. They say, but in the, in the barbershop quartet, when all four of them are singing the song just right, when their harmonies collide, they say they can actually hear a fifth voice. It's like an optical illusion, but with your ears, oral illusion. They can hear a fifth voice. Jesus is the fifth voice when we gather, when we worship. He sings with us and over us because he wants to, because he's not ashamed to, because it's what he came to be and to do. The fifth voice is Christ our brother who sings with us in praise. And even when we miss the notes and even when we muddle the harmonies, his perfect voice sings over us and with us. Sometimes you can kind of feel that, right? Ever experienced that? Worshiping with the people of God and it's just... And it's true even when you don't feel it. And that is what we will do forever. He's not ashamed to call you his family. He's not ashamed to call you his. He has conquered for you. He has sacrificed for you. And he loves you. So let's sing with him now in just a minute. Let me pray before we do. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us, for us, fight for us, and that you even now, Lord, join us. Be our fifth voice. Even this morning, right now as we sing to you, join us. Amen.